Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. Goop is the divisive brand many people love to hate. Look no further than the show art for Goop's new Netflix series. The art, which my guest this week, Goop Chief Content Officer Elise Lonen, describes as vulvic, quickly set off a predictable tweet storm. And that is somewhat the point. Goop is the brainchild of Gwyneth Paltrow, celebrating her own take on a meaningful and often expensive life. It isn't for everyone, and and that too is the point. This week, Lonan and I discuss the nuances of creating lifestyle content tied to such a polarizing figure. Her experience in melding content and commerce at both Goop and previously at Condé Nast Lucky, and even what it was like trying mushrooms for Goop's new Netflix show. Hope you enjoy. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you've been at Goop for six years. I'm sure you run into people at parties and they're like, Goop, oh my God, I've heard of it. And they go into some sort of, you know, viral sensation and stuff like this. But what how, what do you explain to them that, that Goop is about and what makes Goop unique? So it started out as a as a simple newsletter once a week out of Gwyneth's Kitchen in London in 2008, just her experiences in the world. She felt like she had access to incredible thinkers, doctors, healers, and just experiences in general. And that's what it was born out of, the stuff that she was interested in, and then by proxy, the stuff that her friends were interested in. And we haven't, we've obviously grown significantly in the last 11 years, but it's essentially still kind of the same. We do content and food, travel, wellness, which is what we're probably most known for, beauty, fashion. But it comes from that place of open-mindedness and curiosity and asking Mm -hmm. questions. So it was never a media. We don't report stories in a typical way where we go out and then craft things into a story. We just ask people. We publish straightforward Q&A so people can just get the information and decide for themselves. Yeah. So. Talk about the challenge or, you know, there's 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 always like opportunity and challenge on both sides of having a personality at the center. Yeah. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is a, is a big personality, mm-hmm. um, 100% probably recognition among uh, the, the type of audience you're looking to attract. Um, but at the same time, they're, they're, it, it comes with a challenge because this started as a personal right. thing and now... It's, it's not going to threading all these articles, right? Right. Yeah. So obviously, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine, there are benefits and drawbacks. The benefits being that we get a tremendous amount of interest and attention for almost everything that we do. Yeah. Um, and it brings, you know, she really is able to bring the spotlight and mainstream things that have existed for a long time, but might not yet have mm-hmm. become part of popular culture. And, um, and I think as a as sort of an icon herself or an example of what it means to live like this, it it gives people sort of an immediate opportunity to understand in some ways what the brand is about. Um, And then the drawbacks, of course, are that she is a public person and people like to project things onto her and all there. And that that's part of our culture. And that's a that's fine. What do you mean project? Things? Oh, she's just polarizing for so yeah. many people. Um, that and, word comes up a lot. With yeah. People. And, you know, as I think a lot of women are who are unapologetic about mm-hmm. what they believe and who they are in the world, like she's never asked for permission. She's never said, hey, is it OK with everyone if I'm no longer an actress and I become a business person and someone in media? 
And then she's not, she doesn't bow down. Like she's unwilling to sort of stop in the face of criticism. And I think for a lot of women, she's come to represent what it means to continue to stand up Mm -hmm. for yourself and not be cowed and to like live in that discomfort. Is it any different being the, the, the chief content officer of a brand built around a personality than just to be of a brand not built around a personality? Yeah. You know, I grew up at Lucky magazine. And it's funny because when Lucky started, it was also kind of polarizing. People loved to make fun of it. And then it was the most successful launch in the history of Condé Nast. And the secret of Lucky was that Kim France created a magazine that she herself wanted, that her friends wanted. And then sort of, again, it had that ripple pool effect within media. And at no point at Lucky did I, and I still hear this sometimes when I go to media conferences, at no point was there this sort of othering of the audience. She's a woman named Gloria who lives in Peoria and has 2.3 children. And like, this is what we're going to create for her. It came from inside. Like it was Mm -hmm. um, done in a way that wasn't, um, sort of prepackaged with this phantom person in mind. It was done right. like sort of from the heart, as cheesy as that sounds. And so because it starts with Gwyneth, it's similarly like there are real mm-hmm. people that are making the content and there are people who were specifically making it for. But when you're like, if someone, I don't know how the pitch process is, but like, does it go through like a test where you're like, this isn't GP? Huh. No. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, no. is it any different like that than just like a brand? I mean, because uh, when you're figuring out what makes sense for a brand, there is some sort of parameters you right. go around. I just wonder if it's different because like um, it sort of has her endorsement. Right. No. And I think that that's that's it's a really, really good and interesting question, because one of the things that we do that obviously we get a lot of attention for is we write about practices that people find power in. So like we're very known in the culture for talking about jade eggs. And it yeah. was never it's the stuff that we do is never prescriptive. It's never like everyone needs to just drop everything and go get a jade egg. It was, you know, a Q&A with someone who found a lot of power in that practice. And so like I've never used one. That's mm-hmm. not the idea. It's never. <laughs> you could. Um, it's That's not the idea of being prescriptive and sort of this is what we do, therefore you need to do it too. Instead, we're sort of examining all of these things and saying some people find a lot of power in this practice and we're not going to sh- shame these women mm-hmm. or pass judgment on them. You might It might be resonant for you or something more Western might be more resonant for you. Yeah. So talk about the audience because uh, you, you mentioned how goop can be polarizing mm-hmm. and that's that's obvious. Um, and I think a lot of people fixate on it. And I, I think it doesn't really matter necessarily because yeah. like a lot of the people that find it quote unquote polarizing or controversial or something like this, it's probably not for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so who is it for? You know, I think... I think it's 70% of our readers are women. Actually, a lot of men read the content. There's a a male section. There's a male section. section And a lot of the, you know, food, travel, a lot of the wellness is non-gendered and it's not supposed to be gendered. But it is a primarily female audience. um, And they typically are um, affluent, although there's a range, too, in that as well. I know people think it's only for wealthy women, which isn't true. I think it's Tracy Anderson. That's what <laughs> we talked earlier about, about Tracy, Tracy Anderson. Anderson, which is a high-end yeah. fitness studio. I guess if you charge enough money, it's not a gym, it's a, it's a studio. studio. But um, yeah, so it's a, it's, 
typically women. I think it's women who have been largely ignored. You know, that was another, when I was at Condé, I remember being, you know, 23, 24 and an editor there and realizing that somehow I was target demo. And I was like, how is it possible that I'm the target demo when I don't have any money? Yeah. And yet you sort of age out. I'm out of the, I'm 40, I'm out of the Target demo and I have, obviously I have kids, but I have more money than I had 20 years ago. That's sure. for sure. And yet, so I think for a lot of women, it's like, oh, I'm suddenly not only sort of creeping towards the invisibility that mm-hmm. seems to apparently, they say, come with perimenopause and menopause, but I'm not, I'm irrelevant mm-hmm. to marketers. Yeah. And so I think that we, um, and then when you compound on that, the way that women are often ignored by their doctors um, and sort of what's happening as we surge against the patriarchy, it all sort of starts to make sense. So it's like a woman who I think has really come into her power, Mm -hmm. who wants to be her own authority in her life, who wants to make those decisions unilaterally, whether it's about travel or food, and just wants the information, who doesn't want to be told what to think, but just wants information. So why does this brand make sense now? Because I think it is a brand of, like, sort of now. Yeah. And that's good for a brand. Like, it's, it's yeah. a lot better than being a brand that should have existed in, like, 1973. Um, what, what is going on within the culture that you think makes Goop, like, resonant within this particular time period? Group? Yeah, and I think we're, I really think we're obviously not alone in it. I think it's because Gwyneth didn't, you know, grow up in normal corporate culture and she didn't grow up in media. And so she has no problem ignoring rules or doing things our own way, you know, like she's not sort of like, oh, this is how we package stories. And so I think part of it is that it's, it's, it's disruptive. Like you don't see people publishing Q&As, right? It has to be a reported, written through story where, um, there's a filter or point of view put on it by the writer. And she was sort of like, I don't really care about that person's opinion. I just want to like, I want really well-researched, thoughtful questions directed at the researcher of the study so that I can make up my own mind. And Mm -hmm. I think it's representative of what's happening in general, which is that people will always love opinion and criticism and all of that, but they also just want the information. It's it's part of what's happening in the internet, right? We can all just go... right find it for ourselves. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that we're, we're with a lot of other media brands who are just, that's, that's the model. Yeah. But I think it also seems like, I mean, wellness itself, which mm-hmm. let's get into the, the term because it can mean pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, but is almost like a luxury good to some degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause I think like when you in this a, country, yeah. Right, in this country, yes. But, like, when you get to, which is which is kind of funny that, yeah. like, you know, you get enough money here, you can, like, sort of do practices that people in countries that have far less money do just exactly. regularly. But that, being that as may, like, I feel like the, um, you know, wellness and stuff, when you get to a certain amount of having disposable income these days, there is, I, it feels like there's a shift towards just trying to accumulate possessions to this broad, amorphous category of, mm-hmm. of wellness. Yeah. Quotes around and wellness. experience. Yeah. yeah. And the quality of your interactions and your relationships and the quality of the relationship with yourself. And yeah, I do think it's interesting that it's become um, in this country aligned with that when really, A, like the tenants of wellness are free. Typically it's like drink water, yeah. move your body, 
find a few moments to think and meditate. That's like 110 year olds in Sicily who yeah. are like, we've been doing this for 110 exactly. years. Yeah. And then, um, you know, in, in Eastern medicine, the role of a doctor, like a Chinese medicine doctor, is to keep someone well. Like they failed you when you've gotten sick. So it's interesting, like how our our perception of health has sort of been distorted in the West, where medicine has become not about prevention, but more about disease management and sickness, and you know, combating symptoms. And instead of sort of a, like, how do we just keep people healthy and well for as long as possible mm-hmm. instead of sort of knocking out the hurdles of disease that, that present, and particularly in this country. I mean, other, other um, countries are beating us on health span and lifespan despite spending a tiny fraction of what, what right. we do on healthcare. So that's what makes it kind of funny that wellness is mm-hmm. perceived as sort of an elite concept here when really it's like how do we invest in ourselves and do this work so that we stay well and um we're not Mm -hmm. you know in hospitals so on that i mean because this has been an issue like over the years is that line between you know i know it's like presenting information Mm -hmm. um we're just asking questions here but like you know um there's certainly been concerns that um, it doesn't hew to sort of medical standards Mm -hmm. um, you know and some of these practices are you know while common in maybe in other societies are um, not common here and so therefore um, although they're often more common than people think so yeah, on that we were. But very, now you have like a doctor, right, right? That like vets some stuff, or no? Well, we have um, we have PhDs. Yeah. Who? So we have um, there's a PhD from MIT on my team, adjunct professor at Stanford in nutritional science. Um, so we're doing, and with that, it's more that we're doing other types of content. Like we are doing something called Goop PhD, where we look at a chronic disease and then are evaluating all the existing research and all the. Here are all the clinical trials you can enter. This is what the research has shown. Here are the lifestyle factors. Um, Here are the conventional treatments that have proven to be effective. Here are alternative Mm -hmm. modalities that have been proven to be effective or are promising, um, which we think is sort of a great deeper dive service for our readers. But yeah, we're very clear. You know, people like to say, oh, it's pseudoscience. But pseudoscience is when you present something and say, this can the science shows that this yeah, can cures. cure cancer, yeah, right. right? Which we would never do. So we're very clear, and we label all of our content, and a ton of it is um, from Western doctors, from PhDs at leading institutions, and it's part of the scientific canon at right. this point. Um, and we go really deep with them in terms of what, because typically research is like a decade ahead of where mm-hmm. doctors are in terms of how long it takes to sort of make it. To into practices. Um, and then for some things, it's an ancient modality and some things are speculative but interesting, but we're never saying, oh, there's all this conclusive evidence. I just think when you think about, in our culture, we're always sort of like science with a capital S, we can be quite dogmatic about it, interestingly, quite religious about it. Um, but science is constantly evolving and there is so much that we don't know. And by si- science evolving, like the scientific method is not evolving. But yeah. science, you know, there are breakthroughs Every day, no scientist would say, oh, we have all the answers and we understand the universe, right? There's so, we don't even understand how the brain works. Um, so 
we might not have the language at this point. We might not have the tools to measure, but it doesn't mean that some of these practices, which people say really help them and where things actually can be sort of physically seen, aren't Mm -hmm. real. Right. And so we don't want to dismiss people's experience. But then it gets into like the anti-vax and then like... We are not anti-vax. I know people love to make every conspiracy theory they like to heap on us, but... That's that's not one. No. Okay. No, but what I mean is like, you know, yes, there's a lot of unknowns. Right. But like at the same time, I think... You know, the anti-vaccine. But that's a good example of a perversion of science, because that was a scientific study that came out saying vaccines are linked. It came out in The Lancet, which is Mm -hmm. one of the most reputable journals in the world. And then it was completely debunked. It had to be retracted. And obviously it did a lot of damage socially. But that's an example of something that somehow passed mm-hmm. the peer review scientific bar and then they realized that it yeah. was complete bunk. Right. But you know what I mean? Like, so that's what I, it's like. We Everyone needs to be asking questions also of the science that is published. Mm-hmm. Who's paying for it? What were the results? How much should it be? Placebo effect. Yes. Which is one of the most impactful, you know, we always say placebo effect makes someone like you somehow associate with gullibility. But the reality is, like, the mind is very powerful. Sure. And it's hard to beat. It's really hard for drugs to beat. The placebo effect. Um, but that's that's sort of the, the scientific standard. And in, even when they do, it's like 60% or it's not mm-hmm. like it's not like everything's a slam dunk. You know, yeah. for some people, it doesn't work. So I want to talk about the business model. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you are lucky. So you're not, um, you know, it's not new to you to be in a, that mix of content and commerce. Yeah. And I think, I think Goop is an interesting category of, of publishers, I want to say, but they're not really publishers because I think the business model that most makes sense is closer to a DTC company than yeah. a, a, a media company, um, quote unquote. Yeah, for us? Yeah. Yeah, we're just like so many hybrids, it's really hard to categorize because to us. to be Goop, like you're never going to be mass. Right. Right? Mm-mm. No, and we what we focused on, you know, from when I started, when it was really a time of um, content farms and scale and how many pieces can you pump out to get however many stories and sites came to become indistinguishable from each other and you yeah. had no idea where you were. You were just reading something. And then, you know, when Facebook yes. was... You're, you're in L.A. Demand yeah. media was around the corner. Yeah, exactly. So when, yeah, you were just... They probably saw jade eggs, like, uh, you know, popping and, like, started... Started just... <laughs> jitting up lots of pages. Stealing all of our SEO. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we realized... I was, we did not want to be that or do that. And so we've always focused on the quality of our of our person and our reader and their um, loyalty to us and the stickiness of our brand and the fact that they it takes us a long time to do a story. We don't we do 15 stories a week, period. Mm. We don't um, we we spend a ton of time figuring out who is the best person to talk to about this modality or this this mm-hmm. issue. Um, but are you always looking for hooks to the commerce? No, no. So I'd say um, within our content, about maybe a third of it includes products that we sell. A third of it is 
includes stuff that we do with partners that we're very clear about, where we do a lot of rigorous testing about the brands that we partner with. Um, and then we really spent the same team, like spend a lot of energy on those stories so that it doesn't it doesn't affect our okay. brand. So it's not like and then a third okay. is just pure editorial. How do we how you know the weekly editorial meeting? How how do we make this to to push this particular product? Yeah, no. And what we've seen within our data too, often it's not related. So like there'll be a story about something that there's absolutely no commerce angle on it at all. Let's say it's a story about lupus. Um, and then, but we'll see that that story also drives our own mm-hmm. e-commerce just because people are like, they read the article and then they wander over and maybe they buy a dress. Yeah. That it's not like, there's doesn't need to be this sort of like, buy this and then they buy that. It's just not how it yeah. works, I think. Are you seeing, because it's a different time now than when you were at Lucky. Are you seeing, I was listening to uh, uh, Peter Kafka's podcast with Jonah Preddy, who's going to be in here in a couple of weeks. But like, Jonah was talking about the sort of flattening between inspiration and action mm. um, happening. Um, and that that is a big opportunity for publishers. Because, you know, historically, and I think Lucky was trying to, to, to do this, but historically people would get Condé Nast magazines, get inspired by something, and then they would transact and, right. and, you know, maybe there was some kind of value ascribed to, to Condé Nast, but there was a big gap. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, you know, last click players like exactly. Google I know took, he's... took a lot of credit. Yeah. Are you seeing that? I mean, because you've seen it like in different eras, I don't want to say eras, but different times, mm-hmm. um, where that inspiration to action is flattening or coming together. I think it's I think it's an interesting I had just heard him talking about this and attribution models which are still imperfect like who gets credit for the transaction mm-hmm. and what's the actual when is that moment happening I don't I think it's I'm sure it's flattening for some things but I also feel like what we're seeing is just a heightened consciousness about what people are buying and I think more space like people taking a second rather than to sort of like feed their need to buy something to think about it, consider it, ponder it. Yeah. Um, and except for Instagram. Except for, yeah. Yeah. I so, got some terrible pillows. Like, oh, yeah, totally. And then eight <laughs> weeks later, it showed up. It was like a third Not of the a size good experience. Yeah. What it needs to be. So we try, you know, because you could also look at our model and say, wow, you guys are creating a lot of friction in the funnel, right? Like, you should just be pushing people to buy. You shouldn't be giving them so much information about the products. You shouldn't be doing so much storytelling, like, make it faster, make it faster, make it faster. But we care a lot more about that long-term engagement and sort of LTV of our readers than we do about capturing a single transaction and then churning that person out. Mm -hmm. So, in a way... Sure, it's maybe a little flatter, but I think for if you're trying to make enduring relationships, you don't want it to be like so right. quick, you okay. know? So final thing is uh, the Netflix show. Let's start with the poster. I have to talk about the poster. I mean, you guys knew what you were doing, right? Oh, yeah. Of course. Okay, <laughs> okay good. I know. That's reassuring. Um, anyone who hasn't seen the poster, how would you describe it? It is Volvic. Okay, it's Volvic. <laughs> I didn't say it. But what is the show actually about? So it's a six-part docuseries, and it is 
it's they're all wellness themed and they range again in the same way on the site from things that are sort of part of science the scientific canon at this point longevity and mm-hmm. what the research shows about ways that we can decrease our biological age and stave off disease to things like psychedelics which are obviously mainstreaming in a significant way where there is a ton of research about how effective they are particularly with yeah. trauma and depression so the, what is it the ay- ayahuasca ayahuasca yeah we, this we do we talk about we do psilocybin we do mushrooms and then we talk about psilocybin um in jamaica we took some staffers how was it it's legal in jamaica it was amazing (laughs) to watch to find out and then to things that are again like what is happening so we do energy healing um that's a major head scratcher of like Mm -hmm. we don't understand the mechanism by which this is happening gwyneth like She's in it. In it, but is she is it is it about her or not? I mean, she's revealing um within about her own experiences. She does a couple of the episodes, like she does the actual experiential part. So Gwyneth and I interview experts and then we cut back and forth to the experience of the wider goop team. Mm-hmm. Um and so and then there's an episode on on female sexual pleasure, mm-hmm. which is where the poster, what inspired the poster? Okay. No, it was a smart move. Look, everyone, it, it was Isn't it shared. crazy, too, that it's, like, still... Far and wide. Just like, talk What about... else would the poster be? I know. I mean, I, you know, I love a good troll, and to me, that seemed like it was trolling mm-hmm. the, the sort of the goop haters out there. We're pretty careful about everything we do. We're <laughs> okay. pretty conscious it, about it. Seemed, it. it seemed mindful. <laughs> um, uh, so the final thing is just about the brand and how f- and how you guys in- internally think about like how far the brand um, can stretch. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think everyone, it's sort of back to the future. Everyone is going back and, and getting that sort of Disney sketch out and, mm-hmm. and thinking about how they can create franchises that exist in all sorts of different ways. I've been to the Goop store in London. Mm. Um, I perused it. There's one closer to home. In I know. Park. I didn't know. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't go specifically for that. But I have been to the store. Anyway, how do you think of the brand? I mean, now, like, versus, like, a, you know, how Conde would have thought of a, a media yeah. brand. I mean, we think about it from a real a place of not tightness, but just like keeping it tight and keeping it rigorous and keeping it up to the standards that the people who engage with us expect. So we never just sort of launch something helter skelter in the same way that we didn't just start pumping out as much content as we possibly could. There will always be restraint. But that said, you know, we've been able to extend our content into podcasts, books, um, Netflix show, we have retail stores. Could we do something like a hotel? Could we be in food? Um, we do these big wellness experiences, these in group health days, which are incredible. Um, so in a way, like you can sort of take what we do and apply it and 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 stretch it, as you said, yeah. um, without needing to sort of we would we'll never pervert the brand. We'll never sort of mm-hmm. make it into something that we don't feel yeah. like is true to the, its integrity. And the beauty of that is that you don't become dependent on advertising. I think that's why a lot of people are really interested in these models. Yeah, we do. You know, we have a really nice media business sort of at the heartbeat of the brand, but what it's allowed us to do is really extend and do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do, like live events, dinners. Um, We're doing a cruise with celebrity cruises. We're doing a day of wellness on on board. All right, see you on on ship. Come come along. (laughs) Okay, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening. Quick reminder that we'd love to hear from you. 
Please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get this podcast. Also, you can email me. I'm brian at digiday.com. Or you can tweet at me. I am at bmrc on Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you.